This is the Horse Radio Network. This is episode 126 of Horsemanship Radio, brought to you by Omega Fields, the world's best omega-3 supplements for horses. Horsemanship Radio is a part of the family of the Horse Radio Network. And today we have a little tradition coming at you. But you know what? Some of these traditions are bending the rules a little bit, and I like it. This is Debbie Laux, and you're listening to the Horsemanship Radio. Thanks for joining us. Horsemanship Radio airs on the 1st and the 15th of the month, and I have my producer, Jen, with me today. Hi, Jen. Greetings. How's Debbie? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. It's the holiday season as we record this show. That's true. Getting all the holiday season. Yeah. Are you feeling it? Are you feeling it? You know, a little bit. I am finally today. I had the Christmas music radio station going in my head while I was working on some files today. You know how certain, especially the little tiny radio stations at Christmas time, they start right around Black Friday and they play nothing yeah. But Christmas music straight through till like New Year's Day. I had that one going. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. I had to switch to Holiday Soul. I thought, you know, let's do something a little different here. And it was pretty cool. Actually. Holiday <laughs> Soul. Was, I didn't know there was holidays. It's all soul and it's all holiday. It's really? really? It's beautiful. I didn't know there was such a thing. See there? We learn something every day. Just keep flipping that dial. You'll learn something. Now, do, you, do you have a terrestrial radio or do you listen to Sirius? That was serious, actually, yeah. right. Yeah, it's like one of those specialty t- stations yes. or channels. Yes, Glenn, or Glenn listens to those, too. He, he has serious radio in his car, and he thinks that's pretty awesome. It is. If you're going to travel a little bit, which we do, um, yeah. yeah, we get on yeah, the Yeah, and in, unless you're in a metropolitan area, it's mm. hard to get a radio station. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's nothing worse than, you know, I'm driving three hours, and to go from uh, a great something I'm listening to, and then, you know, yeah. gives <laughs> when they hear the end of that. <laughs> it is very, yeah, talk about first world equestrian problem. You're driving yeah. to a horse show and you have to keep retuning your radio. <laughs> what a bummer that is. Yeah. Just listen to podcasts, everybody. Then you won't Precisely. lose Precisely. You know? Just listen to podcasts. There True, we go. It's what I do, actually, except for do. the holiday soul. I guess I got into that a little bit. but It's it's the new holiday tradition. Uh, yeah. That to is the podcasting. Yeah, yeah. I just sat down with a lady the other day. It was so fun. Who had a horse out uh, where I ride. And she was, it was like, oh, you have a, you know, you, one of those, I didn't know you. And uh, the, and we start talking horses, which is always really fun. And she goes, oh, and you know what? I'm so, I'm getting so back into horses now. And um, I listened to this podcast and it's like, it has like, um, he, uh, she knew horses in the morning, but she also knew horsemanship radio, and she said, and the critters one, oh, and heels no, down, funny. and I went, oh, <laughs> let's open that app up. <laughs> I go, is it this one? She goes, yeah. And I went, that's me. No. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Isn't that it's funny? funny. The first experience for me like that, but it was really fun. I mean, she doesn't. I don't think she thinks I'm a celebrity at all, but she, but she was cute because you know she, the horse world's kind of small, and it was mm-hmm. just fun to run into another horse person who's listening to podcasts. So right. there they are. You're all out there. It's really yeah. fun. Yeah. Well, that's some of our new traditions, but one of the old traditions that's going to come up on the show to, today uh, when we get to our guest is this whole vaquero tradition thing, mm-hmm. and 
it's going to be a really interesting conversation because I know nothing about Vaquero other than it vaguely relates to being a cowboy. Yes. And I'm sure there's a lot of folks who either know that much or even a little bit less. So maybe we, before we get to our guests, you can give us sort of Vaquero 101 so we have some background. Oh, gosh. Well, that's the reason I booked these guests, so they could give me the 101. But but I am come prepared. I have a, a bit of a definition of a Vaquero in case people have kind of heard it but didn't really know what it is. It sounds Spanish, but what the heck. And um, I use this definition, Vaquero, a horse-mounted livestock herder of Spanish Mexico who first came to California with the Jesuit priest in 1687 and later with expeditions in 1769 and the San Juan Batista de Anza expedition in 1774. They were the first cowboys of the Americas. Make sense? Makes sense. So a vaquero is a livestock herding person mounted on a horse. Yep. Okay, got that. So my... For for me growing up, a cowboy was the guy you saw on TV in a spaghetti western. Right. <laughs> Not quite Tom Mix, probably more Clint Eastwood is who I associated with a okay. cowboy. Right. At, or Bonanza or it, one of those things. Or Bonanza. Mm-hmm. But it started out Vaquero and then morphed into American Cowboy. Yeah. That's true. So the Vaqueros came first, obviously, because they came out here to raise cattle. Because if you think about it, if we go back to these these numbers, years 1687, seventeen, we, we weren't out there yet, the Europeans, no. Oh, no. It, plus, there's no refrigerators out there. So no. wait a minute. Why are they raising cattle? Think about that. In the Western United States, how would they get cattle all the way back to... I don't know, Spain or Europe or anywhere else. Anywhere else. Yeah. What do you think? You take it there live. Nope. No? No. They dry it. Well, that's closer. (laughs) A lot of beef jerky. No, it was, you know, thousands and thousands of head of cattle, right? And they would drive them to the beaches. And and you're going to hear our guests here are going to talk about the central coast, Santa Barbara counties, San Luis Obispo counties. They were great horsemen and great cattle people because they could raise those horses and cattle up on scrub. I mean, there was really, it's it's semi-arid out here, a desert kind of climate in California. And um, so they were raising them in, in really kind of difficult climbs, but at least there was a lot of land to raise them on. So they drive all these thousands and thousands of cattle to the beaches where the big ships came in. And what did they collect? Not the meat, not the live uh, animal on the hoof, certainly, not no room for that. It was the hides. So the Corinthian leather was um, how Europe, you know, Italy, you go to Italy for leather, you go to Spain for leather. It was the leather that was the commodity. Really? So the yeah, so it was on the beaches where they would slaughter the cattle and skin them, dry them out on the on the sand on the beaches on the dry part, and cure them, and then the hides would go over there. So that was it. Who knew? The vaquero knew. That was <laughs> so. As stock, I'm going to use the word stockman because at that time it was stockmen. There were no stockwomen. Mm-hmm. As stockmen, they. Ra- they're raising cattle for the purpose of harvesting hides, not meat for consumption, although I'm sure there was a little bit of that too. So at that point in time, no fences anywhere. Livestock just roamed freely, so you needed lots of vaqueros to keep track of them Yeah. so they don't wander off. I guess they did not brand them, or did they? 
Uh, I don't know that. You don't know? That is a great question. I, it feels like the branding goes way far back just in order to keep the – so back then, California wasn't a state. It was nope. it, it was this big territory, and it was really owned by the Spanish and the, and the Mexicans. You know, it's really Baja all the way up. And so there were these large – what the South would call a plantation. Out here, we call these land grants. And these large land grants were proprietary. You know, there were um, people in charge of those. And hmm, something t- – and my gut tells me there was some sort of identification like a branding. But I don't know. Oh, interesting. Well, see, that's another episode. Right it is. There. I'll have to find out for you and find I will out bring it back. Because that, that whole process, not necessarily the literal process of branding a, a cow, but that whole culture of the brand and what it meant to the to the individual cattlemen and stuff, that I find fascinating as well. But anyway, Vaquero, mm-hmm. did they, did the Vaqueros start out expert rope swingers that we see today? Or is that something that developed later on when the Fakero tradition sort of left everyday working and became more of... Oh, no. I think I think they were always wonderful with the rope. And, and just it's good horsemanship and cattle handling, you know. Those ropes were used uh, to save a lot of lives, too, you know. So, um, Vaquero, by the way, is the derivative of vaca, and vaca is cow or cattle. Um, and so, they, that it really is not so much an equine-related industry, although they couldn't have traveled the miles and done, and done what the they horses. did without the horses. Yeah, exactly. But their focus was really um, cattle and cattle handling. Yeah, and all that. That's where their money came from. Yeah. So different different cattle cultures developed different skill sets. The vaquero developed the roping skill set. Yes. Versus the crackers in Florida developed a different uh-huh. skill set, but you couldn't because you can't rope a cow in the scrub that we have here. Everything is uh-huh. it's literally a jungle. Um, yeah. So there's no roping a cow. You you make a lot of noise with the cracking of the whip, which is what yeah. drives the cow along right. with your trusty dog. And right. then in Australia, they have a different tradition. So that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's the commodity. It's the business of the of the days back then. Yeah, that's uh, that's what grew up around those lifestyles that we think of now as wild wild west. You know, but um, yeah, and they have yeah. great hats. Vaqueros have I like their vaquero hats. Yeah, I agree with you. Is, even though I grew up in a more Western style, I think the vaqueros um, got a great tradition of um, practicality too. You know, if you look at their equipment, their saddles, and everything, even though we would probably improve on most of us today, um, it, it is a beautiful tradition and uh, the colors and everything. It's a nice blending of Spanish and Mexican and and then the European influence as it came in too. But more than anything, they were really great horse people because they had to keep their, I mean, their livelihood depended on keeping their horses healthy and uh, and well-bred, you know, to do the job that they had to do, uh, to be cowy and some of the things mm-hmm. that you'll hear some of our um, Western reigners, you know, espouse about those mm-hmm. those early uh, traditions and skills, skill sets you still see in the competitions today. Yeah. Really cool. Well, that's pretty awesome. Why don't we take a break and hear from our wonderful sponsors, Omega Fields, and then we'll chat with our first guest. Hi, Joe Camp here to share about Omega Fields. Omega Fields exists to help you keep your first promise to the horses you love, to care for them well. Nutrition is the foundation of a healthy life and supports all the activity that brings you and your horse so much joy. 
Omega-3s from flax are the cornerstone of that foundation. So, coupled with the finest ingredients in their proprietary pure glean flax stabilization process, they created Omega Horseshine, Omega Horseshine Complete, Omega Nibblers, Low Sugar and Starch, Omega Antioxidant, and Proventum Probiotic Soft Treats. Thousands of horses are experiencing a vibrant life with the help of Omega Fields products, including all of ours, a part of helping you keep your promise to your friends. Nutrition for a healthy life isn't just their slogan. It's their purpose. Paul Rigetti and his family epitomize the Vaccaro tradition in everything they do. Since the 1860s, Paul and his forebears, initially dairy farmers, have cultivated and ranched the land that has been in the family for years. Paul's commitment to the Vaccaro way of honoring the land and his family shine through his entire life. Pat Roberts is an accomplished horsewoman. She grew up loving horses and has trained, bred, and showed championship horses. She met Monty Roberts in grammar school, and after marrying, they began their careers together. A talented artist, it was natural for her to gravitate toward creating numerous sculptures of the horse in motion. Pat has been honored with many awards, and her sculpture is a part of the permanent collection uh, at the Kentucky Horse Park in Lexington, Kentucky, and the European Museum of Museum of Art, as well as in several corporate headquarters, both here and in the United here in the United States and abroad. She has collectors in 15 countries now and is in the personal collection of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II at Windsor Castle. Well, welcome. We have two legends on the phone, and that doesn't mean old. We have two legends from the Vaquero tradition today. We have Paul Rigetti. Hi, Paul. Hi. How you doing? Really good. Thank you. And we have my mom, Pat Roberts, on the phone. Honored to have you on, Mom. Thank you. Thank you. I'm honored to be a vaquero uh, in the great tradition. In the great tradition. I mean, I couldn't resist having you both on together because you both have been a part of the heritage of California, born and raised. Right, Mom? That's correct. I'm a third-generation Californian. Yeah, and Paul may have you beat. What's your generational count now, Paul? I'm I'm three right now, so Okay, three you guys are neck, neck and neck. Neck and neck there. Well, it's wonderful to have you both on and I read this lovely article, a local article about Paul and Paul, I understand that there is a Vaquero Gala going on this week where you will be honored as the the individual who exemplifies the Vaquero lifestyle with the with this award uh, about being a honored Vaquero. And I'm um, I'm excited to ask what that means to you. You know, it means a lot to me to to be one of the Vaqueros of of the year. You know of 2018 and and it 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 really is a a big honor for me and and my family and uh you know there's i've got a lot of close friends that uh that have called me and emailed me and texted me and uh congratulated me as well so i'm i'm really honored and uh flattered to be accepted as as the vaquero of the year Mm -hmm. yeah wonderful and and i guess mom if i'm correct you were honored as the vaquero artist of the year in what year was that that was in 2011. And what was that experience? Maybe you can help Paul with this experience. What, what did well, you go through? It was fabulous. I mean, first of all, I was so proud uh, to be honored. So because actually my mentor, Jack Swanson, uh, was the Vaquero Artist of the Year, I think the year before me. And uh, to have my mentor um, be honored and then 
for me to be honored, and I was the first woman of the Carol artist mm-hmm. uh, in that capacity. Was you know it was monumental, and uh, uh, what you have to do, Paul, is you have to have a sort of an acceptance speech to get up in front of the crowd. But that's really easy because it's so much fun, and everybody's so supportive and. It was a great experience, and I'm looking forward to being there this Friday evening at the gala and uh, listen to what you have to say. You know, I've, I've got uh, I've got a speech kind of written out, and uh, I think it might take a couple of hours, but we might be able to cut it down to maybe 30 minutes. <laughs> so, but, uh, you know, it, it really is an honor to me to be accepted, and uh, uh, I, I do have a I, I do have a few words I'd like to say, and I, I've got a, I've got a few comments, too, from some of the old vaqueros that I was mm-hmm. lucky enough to be around uh, back, uh, you know, a long time ago that uh, that worked up at Rancho Sisquoc. And they had a few stories, and I'd, I'd like to share one of them that I talked to a couple old-timers. And uh, and they were truly vaqueros, those guys that I'm going to mention uh, uh, towards the end of my, my little talk. I think I think that's great. And uh, I, I've been around a long time, too, so I... I'm very privileged to have known some real vaqueros in my lifetime and, and uh, around my husband, Monty, and, and uh, to be exposed to all of, all of this, uh, our traditions here in the Central California coast. Uh, this is where it all started, actually, I think, in Santa Barbara and uh, San Luis Obispo County. Would you agree? I, I would agree 100%. You know, one of my favorite uh, people that you would know too was Clarence Minetti that kind of brought me along kind of slow there and uh, I got to you know with my father-in-law so you know we had a lot of a lot of conversations about the old Vaquero tradition and the California tradition as well and I you know I accepted that and uh, uh, went on with it and I'm lucky to be a part of it today. Mm. Well I'm, I'm lucky to have known Clarence uh, we, uh, Monty and I moved to uh, San Luis Obispo when we got married way back in 56. And we lived in San Luis for 10 years before we moved down here to the San Ynez Valley. And, of course, we spent a lot of time out there at the far western when it was out there in Casmalia. And uh, it was super. I, I'll, I'll, there's no way that you can compare a, best, a, a bullseye steak. I mean, it chokes me up to mm-hmm. think about it. They are so delicious. I'm so glad that you're continuing with that tradition. Me too. The far Western. And, and you know, and that brings up, I mean, let's fill in for the listeners. What, what is a vaquero? What is a vaquero tradition? Um, what, what kind of, what kind of guy or gal is a vaquero? Tell me, Paul, maybe because you're winning that, that side of the equation. Um, give us a little background for those who are listening, maybe from the East coast or from Europe. Sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was lucky enough to grow up on, on you know, on, on the ranch uh, that my grandfather bought. Uh, well, the grand, great-grandfather bought one ranch just south of Guadalupe in 1860. And then my grandfather uh, was lucky enough to buy a ranch where we live in uh, 1917. And I was born and raised there. And my father and my uncle and they were, you know, they all raised right there on the ranch just south of Orchid and the Guadalupe Ranch. And, uh, you know, I kind of grew up around the, the old vaqueros and the vaquero tradition of, you know, roping cattle with a maguey rope or, a, uh, oh, you know, just uh, an old riata. And I, that's where I kind of learned learned to uh, to rope, a, you know, back, back in the day. And I remember some of these old vaqueros that came and helped us, and they had the leather cuffs around their 
forearm there and you know where their sleeves went and and they had kind of a flat brim hat and mm-hmm. and they all had a uh, uh you know they could they could catch calves uh in the corner or out in the middle of a corral and 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 their horsemanship that's that's where i really enjoyed watching the old vaqueros work was their their horsemanship and 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 the horses at that time you know they didn't they didn't have a tie down on them, and some people know what a tie down is, where you kind of hold their muzzle down a little mm-hmm. bit, with, uh, which had a leather strap that went to their cinch. And the Zobacaras, they never had that. And and I, you know, I enjoyed roping on a horse that you didn't have to have the tie down on, and and they had, you know, great horseman tradition, you know, that the old Vaqueros did, and and really had some really nice horses and. And that's what I enjoyed more than anything was, you know, watching those old timers. And I kind of, you know, I, I don't know if I was a good student or not, but I did learn quite a bit from those gentlemen. And uh, and then my father-in-law, Clarence, as well, and, uh, you know, his son, Tyke, my brother-in-law. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, uh, I, I really, really enjoyed, you know, the outdoors. And I'm still lucky enough to live on the ranch. And, you know, my, my family all lives there with us. And they're my son and daughter our fourth generation of my grandkids are fifth and we all live on the ranch. So that, uh, you know, that, that's the best part of it. Mm, that is. And mom w- alluded to the far Western tavern and that was founded in 1958. And so you, you visited that original one. Is that right, mom? Eight there. I said, Kesme, I meant Guadalupe uh, mm-hmm. because that's the original one. It's now moved uh, to Orchid, but uh, uh, I, I remember the, the, Wooden streets in Guadalupe, and friends like John and Joanne Jones, and and lots of us used to go out there, and that was a big thing for us to go to, to uh, Clarence's. Yeah, yeah, I love what I love what you said, Paul. About it was the original farm to table movement, literally beef from your ranches and vegetables from your produce operations to the customers of the far western. That's pretty cool. We, it seems like we've come back around to the right way of thinking. Well, we, we, we sure hope so. You know, we, we started the restaurant, or uh, Clarence did, uh, in 1958. And, you know, then we moved it to Old Town Orchid in about four years ago, or a little over. And that's that's where we're at now there in Old Town Orchid. And, we you know, we kept the tradition going, and we brought the old uh, back bar from the, from, from the bar inside the restaurant is at our new restaurant now and it's you know we we tried to keep tradition going and uh very and cool. we, you know we have a lot of fun there and you know on and on and on well it's people will recognize bar too isn't it isn't that beautiful yeah it, and, and people know this for generations now too i i love that uh you really are the the originators of the san maria santa maria style barbecue and i think that actually resonates across the globe anymore doesn't it I yeah, it it, it it really mm-hmm. does, and and you know there's uh, you know you go from the east coast to uh, to the central uh, United States, and you know uh, Santa Maria style barbecue is is pretty uh, well known and uh, nationwide known, and you know it's it's a special it's a special barbecue, and and the the, the way it is uh, presented. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. It's really good, and anybody out to California, you better not. 
waste it by not going to far western or at least getting some of that Santa Maria style. I was reading about uh, something that you said, Paul, that was so profound that uh, there are three things that you believe are essential to the Vaquero tradition. And that is, uh, the first one was work with your equine partners. Tell me a little bit about that. You know, all our equine partners are are all local people and uh, the horsemanship that I learned from, you know, some of the different, different uh, uh, friends that we had around. And we were, I was lucky enough to know Harry Rose pretty well, and he was pretty outstanding horseman and, uh, Les Bode a little bit, and but uh, you know I, I learned more from Harry Rose and Clarence that, and my uncle Ernest Brigetti than I did, you know, the last twenty years trying to pick up some of you know some of the other uh, equine friends that we had. But you know we've had a lot of equine friends, and uh, we've been lucky enough to have some very nice horses, and uh, you know we got a pretty nice breeding program going, and sure. and you know that's. Uh, you need that in, in the horse in, in the cattle industry, excuse me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. You know, and I think you should talk to us a little bit about Uncle Ernie because what I understand from some of the things I read is that he was not only immersed in the vaquero tradition, but he started a successful equine breeding program with five Palomino stallions standing at stud in your family's ranch back in the late 20s and 30s. Is that right? Yeah, that, that's correct. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was... Uh, <laughs> I wish I'd have been around to see a little more of that, but I, I'm not that old. But the, you know, I, I've got pictures of uh, the Palomino stallions in our barn that we had. We had a hay barn there at, at the time, and you know, they got seven or eight stalls, and they had them all tied up together, and, and they were all mannered very well, and they were all pretty stallions and well mannered as, as far as uh, I've been told, and I saw a little bit, but I wasn't that old to to see. Uh, you know, see the finished product. I wish I was not in the twenty. Yeah, not in the twenties and thirties. But I thought what was no. interesting. Yeah, you made a point though about that back in the day, the vaquero was dealing with a different kind of colt or filly than we're handling now. Can you t- tell us what you meant by that? You know, the the the, the equine business has evolved so fast and so far that uh, uh, you know that the. the the colts, when they're born, they're a little easier to handle. They're, they're not as Mustang or, or as wild as you would want to call it. I, you know, I, you know, maybe Mustang might be the, the, the wrong phrase, but uh, the, the colts today and the way we handle them are, you know, the, 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 the colts are a lot easier to get around and uh, they don't want to kick you and bite you and everything else. So it's, uh, you know, the whole evolution has uh, evolved to a little general horses and, and, you know, they're, they're really nice bred horses and they're smart and they're, they're easy to take from a, from a colt to put a halter on to a yearling uh, uh, or a two-year-old trying to get saddled too. And, and, you know, they, they just seem to be so much easier to handle today than they were uh, back, back in the, back in the day, I guess. It makes sense. It, it makes sense that we're you're breeding some of that out of out of our horses, and it makes them easier to work with. But what I like that is that you put a sort of a period on it that you said that the notion and the language of breaking a horse, and it's in quotes, is now arcane and outdated. But yet we still use it. That's that's a good point. It, well, we, we we find it a little different in in our program. So you know, from when the Bacaro started their horses, so you know, or their mm-hmm. colt. And, you know, we kind of 
do it just a little different way, and it seems to be working. So I, I don't know if we're going to go back to the vaquero tradition back in the 30s, and you know, 20s and 30s. Evolving. You're evolving, and I think that's that's fair yeah. enough. Yep. But but using the traditional lifestyle of the ranching family, which is really cool that it still exists and that you can still generationally do that. Is there a legacy plan that you have for the Rigetti Maggetti? You know, you're, you've got such a mix of um, amazing family genes. Uh, is, is there something that um, you've planned to keep this vaquero tradition in your family or is it just that everybody enjoys it so much? You know, it, it's both. Uh, you know, I, I I hope that my family carries it on, and I think they will. They've got enough Manetti blood in them that they're going to carry that on. <laughs> and, uh, and, and you know, I've, I've got a granddaughter that uh, she's in high school rodeo, uh, and she likes cutting horses. And she's been riding cutting mm-hmm. horses, and she ended up ninth in the high school national cutting finals in nice. rock springs wyoming and uh uh two uh, last uh was it last year no this year i guess it was this year she ended up ninth in the nation so that was wow. you know that was uh that's awesome that was a feather in our camp and yeah absolutely yeah see there it ride, goes was she riding mm-hmm. a homebred uh no she was not uh <laughs> her her horse that she qualified on ended up uh, coming up lame right before that, and we were lucky enough to uh, to have a, a trainer and a friend that that had a horse for her that we took back there, and uh, she, uh, you know, horse she never had ridden before, and she went back there and uh, did real well, and we were very satisfied, and she, you know, she made the finals out of I think it was 150 or something like that that made the the high school finals, and uh, uh, then they whittled on down to 15. Fifteen, and she ended up ninth. So that that was that was a you know, that that was a big undertaking. And that and, is, yeah. You know, yeah, she, yeah, she's a good cowgirl, and, and if anyone's going to carry that on, it's going to be her. Uh, you know, in the fifth generation, but the fourth, I'm hoping that my son and my daughter carry it on, and mm-hmm. and you know, they 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 love the horses and they love the cattle. So that's 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 where we're at. That's cool, and and I should. Uh, say that you've got a compadre and mom. What did you do last Saturday, mom? (laughs) (laughs) I had so much fun last Saturday. Uh, I am riding a fourth generation uh, gelding. I rode and showed his mom back in 1963 through 66. And then I, I bred her and her daughter and granddaughter and now I'm riding a horse called Blackie, and I showed him here at the San Inez Valley Cow Horse Show, and we won our class in the, the boxing, and then I showed him in the reining, and we won that too. So I had a great weekend, and I celebrated my birthday on Sunday. So, That's right, anyway. and we don't say how old mom is because <laughs> she doesn't act her age, so that's the first point well and second of all well, she let's, you know let's congratulate mom then for her exactly. exactly why have you both Thank on man you. i'm talking to two two uh r- real kick butt <laughs> vaquero <laughs> lifestyle people who are being honored this week so it's really exciting and i think where you two cross here a little bit pathways is in team pinning am i right did you guys have a little i i know that i know that clarence and I think, Paul, you were 78 world champion team pinners. 
Yeah, that's that's correct. There was Taiki, my brother-in-law. That's right. Clarence's son, uh, and Clarence and I, we were 1978 champions here in San Inez uh, for the World Championship team pinning. We were we were pretty lucky. Well, I don't think so. I think uh, you make your luck in the team pinning, but uh, that's real interesting, though, because uh, in case people didn't know, actually that team pinning event really started here in the San Inez Valley. And the World Championship Team Penny Association, that's what we called it when we started. I think there was a half dozen of us that sat down at Jack Aljo's living room one evening and said, let's form association. And uh, we went for it, and it's a great event. And look how it's grown. It's just amazing. They have Team Penny everywhere in the world now. And uh, it came from the Central Coast, the Carroll Country. Lovely. Yes, it did. And I was I was happy enough to and fortunate enough to be part of it, and uh, and also in Santa Barbara they're doing the fiesta. They were lucky enough to win the team pinning down there a couple of times, and you know it's uh, it, it's a fun event. It's a family it's a family affair, and uh, get your grandkids and your kids and next door neighbor and just go out and have fun. <laughs> no, it, it's a great great family. I I love that you describe it that way because that's what it was originally. Designed for to uh, go as a family unit or your best friends and go and compete and have fun and have a barbecue afterwards and maybe a dance and uh, uh, we we really did have good times. It was just that that's some of the best times really in my life is when we were team pinning and uh, going and blowing. Hi, Carol Herder here, president of Cavallo, home of the world's most trusted and popular hoof boots. You know, one of the most interesting parts of what I do is the many horsey stories I get to hear. Most of them are really uplifting. Some are stories of challenges, and a few are downright sad. Recently, a wonderful woman took the time to approach us at a show to share a story about her horse who went down in quicksand. It started out as a really scary story. We were holding our breaths waiting for the outcome, and it turned out wonderful. They winched the horse out relatively unscathed, albeit, you know, a little traumatized, and everyone standing around were super amazed that he still had his cavallo hoof boots on. Scary story with a good ending. Another testament to cavallo. If you don't have a pair for your horse, it's time. Cavallos are easy to put on, easy to take off when you want to take them off, and they stay on. They stay on in all terrain. Cavallo, the world's most trusted hoof boots. Today we have a special little interview. We have Monty Roberts and Michael Eric Lawrence Jr. I'm going to interview both of them. You know, Monty is the man who listens to horses. Uh, That's his New York Times bestseller. Michael Eric Lawrence is a youngster in the horse business, but he's uh, he is carving a niche for himself and has made a bunch of YouTube videos and enjoys sharing all about the equine. He's the host and producer of the equine YouTube show called Heels Down and bottoms up and he's a professional trainer of all horses great and small he has ample experience in hunters jumpers eventing and his personal love dressage currently based out of st louis where he manages a training farm michael lawrence spends his time between bringing up young horses running a lesson program and writing hilarious videos that are relatable to anyone who's ever spent any time in the saddle 
for adults only, please. Hey guys, it's Mike, and today we're going to go over a short list of actual, completely real things that my horse has spooked at. Now, don't get me wrong, I love my horses, but anyone who rides knows that sometimes our beloved fur monsters can shy away from the weirdest things. Let's do this. A deer jumping out in front of us on a trail ride. The sound of a tractor starting. A particularly strong gust of wind. Their own farts. A helmet on my head. A helmet in my arms. Their own tack. Literally every single puddle on earth. A gun going off. A gun not going off. A piece of paper that vaguely resembles the shape of a gun. The second Independence Day movie. A baby crying somewhere on planet Earth. That menacing blade of grass. The recent career of Miley Cyrus. Invisible Nazi space wizards. The exact same jump that we've done 18 trillion times up to now. Their own feed bucket. Legions of the dead. The ending of Avengers Infinity War. Poor little out for those we have lost. Why did I do that? Their own stall. Their own poop. Being ridden on a day that ends in Y. Shadows. Let me say it again. Shadows. Taylor Swift's most recent album. Cows, dogs, sheep, other horses, pretty much any form of biological life. The existential horror of realizing that nothing lays in wait beyond the veil of death, and that our lives have no great significance or cosmic meaning, and that we are but blinks in the eyes of a universe that does not care. The gate leading to their own pasture. Pretty much anything that comes out of Kanye West's mouth. And of course, their own reflection. Whew. What are your horses spook at? Drop a comment down below and let me know. Remember to like and subscribe for more videos, and I will see you guys next time. I'm out. Hello, Mr. Roberts. I'm a huge fan. I'm sure you hear that all the time, but it doesn't, uh, <laughs> doesn't take out that this is a very uh, special meeting for me, and I appreciate you having me on the show today. Well, thank you for being with me, and I never get tired of hearing that. And... Uh, Especially coming from you, Debbie tells me that you're uh, quite active in the horse industry. Active and actively rising, or at least that's what I tell myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love I love Michael's videos. He does have a YouTube channel that I began to watch, and uh, and you call it heels down and bottoms up. Am I right? Yes, yes, I definitely do. It's uh, a supposed to be a funny. Uh, comedic but also very down-to-earth uh, place for equestrians of pretty much all disciplines to come and uh, <laughs> and hear someone really talk about the, the insides of of the riding world and kind of the, the, the stuff that you don't see in Practical Horsemen or, or Horse World Nation, you know, just <laughs> the real down-to-earth stuff that happens uh, when you're not riding. Right. Yeah. Real-life real stuff, Dad. Oh. You've seen that before, right? I have indeed. <laughs> well, uh, Michael is one of those young guys that's up and coming. And what I liked about him was not only was he listening to you when you put out those moments about animal behavior and why the flight animal does what it does, but he's actually teaching that and he's putting it out in practice. And um, Michael, I don't know how old you are. How old are you now? I am 23. Tw now, there you go, Dad. So what is he? Well, You're a multiple of... Never mind. Anyway, <laughs> you have a little bit more experience than he does. But the other thing that I like that Michael does that you do as well, Dad, is you you inject a sense of humor in your lessons, too. And we don't take ourselves too seriously, right? 
I take myself seriously. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, something I've been saying for for years is that unless you're Amish, you know, we don't need horses. We we voluntarily get on these animals' backs because we, we fell in love with it, and and we, you know, it, it's something we enjoy. And I don't I don't believe in the you, you might say classical attitude of of being very uptight and very pretentious is a nasty word, but it, it does fit sometimes about you know a sport that. Many of us just do because we we love it more than most of us love it more than any other part of our daily routine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, no I cubicles agree. for you two. Yeah, I know. So I thought I would start with Monty since um, age rules here, Michael, and also <laughs> also he can establish maybe some some of his beliefs here in uh, in a couple of different subjects, and then mm-hmm. you can you can listen, and then you can actually add your own twist to it if there's some experience that you have. But I'll let you two, you know, kind of run with this after I get you uh, in flight here. But uh, for Dad, spooky horses and behaviors of the flight animal, yeah? Why can horses spook just as easily at a stationary object as they can a, an animated one? You're asking me? I am. Well, you know, I can only ask the horse. And um, you can study horse behavior all you want, and you will still come up with a lot of unanswered questions. And I'm here to tell you that my experience has shown me that all horses are neophobic. Neophobic is a word used to describe something that anything new is apt to kill you. Mm. You are phobically frightened of anything new. And it doesn't matter whether it's a a stationary object or it's a moving object. Moving objects are generally more threatening than stationary ones. But that doesn't put stationary ones on the list of safe objects. Uh, introductions it could be a stationary object that could be lethal to you for for a lot of reasons if it's new to the horse it's worth spooking at and horses are born with two goals one to survive and the other to reproduce and we're not talking about reproduction so they have to survive and in order to survive they must seek a safe place And it is imperative to them that nothing that is new is safe. All right. Michael? Uh, 100% agree. Uh, When I I give bomb-proofing clinics, in addition to my dressage clinics, my jumper clinics, uh, and occasional eventing clinics when I'm feeling particularly suicidal, but my bomb-proofing clinics, I uh, talk about uh, uh, the mammals that traditionally uh, are predators to horses uh, larger felines, larger canines in the wild. To, uh, by the time that ho- they're within fighting distance of horses, when horses have to choose fight as opposed to flight, they're already at a disadvantage. Horses are pretty awkward uh, fighters when you compare them with some of these bigger you know, wild dogs and wild cats especially. So running away and spooking and assuming that everything wants you dead is safer than waiting to see for sure if it's something that wants you dead. Good point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's flight. Right. right. That's what they are, is a flight animal. They will only be driven to fight 
um, when that's the only option left to them. So uh, I agree with you completely. I think that that's a hilarious uh, thought, too. It's a horse on its hind legs looking like a boxer. It is sort of an awkward moment. And that's what they do. I mean, and they're pretty lethal with it if they have to be. But but it is a, a pretty silly thought that flight isn't a better option for them. You did you did do a bomb-proofing clinic that um, we're going to uh, interject the sound into this at some point in this video. I can get my producer to do that probably at the top of that, you guys. But um, it, it is funny. How do you choose, Michael, these crazy things that you come up with for bomb-proofing? Is it because you understand what is really scary to the horse, or is it actually for the people to... to uh, well, horses horses are really simple. Uh, what Mr. Roberts just said is, is spot-on. They, they live to reproduce. They live to survive long enough to reproduce. And everything else can be traced back to, to those two fundamental drives. Uh, but people make things a way more complicated. <laughs> uh, if if horses could cut my paychecks and they're the only ones I had to deal with, I would have a three-hour-a-day job and be pulling in a million dollars a year. But that's not the case. Um, when I when people are on top of a spooking animal, their own instinct, our instinct as humans, is to uh, curl up and defend ourselves, defend our vitals, fetal position, you know, traditional uh, reflexive responses that's really ingrained in our evolution. But you, you tense up on the back of the horse, and if you have a you know, best-case scenario, if you have a good relationship with the animal that you're sitting on top of, they will think, oh, my God, the, you know, person A is, is afraid, therefore I have a reason to be afraid. I, I teach normalization more than bomb-proofing. I call them bomb-proofing clinics because people understand it. But I, I really discourage making a big deal. Oh, the horse walked over a tarp. Love them. Make a big deal. Make a big fuss. Because you're, you're reinforcing the idea that, oh, my God, that was something scary that you did have to reinforce good behavior. If you just walk them over a tarp, walk them past a fire, walk, you know, don't change your own position when loud noises or you know something is coming, uh, that relates to the animal. This is nothing. Because I, I uh, trained on a farm that paralleled train tracks in Illinois. And the trains would, would be, I mean, the train tracks were 20 feet from our pasture. And all the horses that had been there knew, knew the routine. It wouldn't, wouldn't blink an eye when these big diesel locomotives would barrel past. But, you know, when we introduced a new horse, it was interesting because the horse would, the new animal would, would look to the other animals to see what their responses ah, were. Yeah. And when the horses were not doing anything, they would, you know, they would snort a little bit, there, but there was no craziness. There was no running around. Um, and it's, you know, you take that role on as the herd mate when you ride. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, that's well, a great point. You bring up a great point that I, I just heard Dad talk about this last week, I think, about horses. Do they learn from other horses or not? Do you want to speak to that, Dad? I, I remember the spray yeah, sure. bottle. Obser- yeah, sure, observational mm-hmm. learning. Um, when I was in university, uh, all of my professors, I'm going to say 100% of them, said that horses were impossible to achieve observational learning. They didn't learn anything else from other horses. And that is simply not true. Um, They look to the other horses for uh, everything. And confidence in their surroundings, in their environment, is one of the major things they look for. And if the other horse shows confidence, just as you mentioned, we have grapes out here, lots of grapes, and the birds eat the grapes. So you install these, uh, they're 
actually compressed air cannons, and they go off on a regular basis, sounding like a cannon. And uh, any horse is frightened of a gunshot, so not any horse is, but um, some horses are frightened of a gunshot, and most of them are. And I watch these horses eating grass right along a fence next to the vineyard, and the guns go off, and they don't even raise their head. They just keep eating the grass. Um, no horse loves pigs, except a horse that was raised on a pig farm. And they get very accustomed to pigs. Pigs smell funny, they look funny, and they sound funny. So they are unique to the horse, typically. And so horses have a reputation of hating pigs. Well, they don't actually hate pigs. They hate anything new. And uh, you've, you've outlined that, and it, it's absolutely true. You can put them in a feedlot somewhere with a train going five feet over the fence, and the new ones will bolt across there a couple of times and see that the other ones are relaxed about it, and the next thing you know, they're eating with the others with the train sliding by. So, you know, it isn't complicated, and you, you say it right when you say they are in charge of their own anatomy, and uh, they're not complicated. They're quite simple. Uh, we just have to try to get simple along with them. That's why I've been so successful. I was born very simple. <laughs> it's a good point. And an interesting point that you bring up, too, Michael, about physiology. Uh, Dad, I, I know this is one thing that you work on with a lot of people that you run into. But how do you get your physiology right i know it's inborn in you because you you didn't get in this business until you were three <laughs> after that you got busy but how do you teach somebody yeah. or impart yeah what, what what you say is true debbie except that you know i don't believe i was born with the best physiology mm. and i didn't learn about altering your philia your physiology until i was about 12 mm. when i started to know about this and Don Dodge helped me in my teenage years uh, to go to an acting coach and learn how to control my anatomy. Some people are fortunate enough to be born with an automatic low pulse rate and low adrenaline levels and nothing bothers them. That's really good as a horse person because you don't have to fight these things off. But uh, most people are not. And we are predators, and we will get excited, and our heart rate will go up. So, um, boy, I just had an experience in Budapest, Hungary, where the poor lady that owned this horse um, taught it to lie down so that a very heavily handicapped boy could get on while the horse was lying down, and then the boy could ride with me. And uh, when she got to the show, she did fine at home, and I saw videos, everything looked fine. When she got to the show, she had about a 200 pulse rate, and the horse would lie down until she approached with the child, and then the horse would just bolt up and go off. And I had to take the whole team aside and talk about this, and then we got it straightened out, and it worked fine for the show. This was all just happening in rehearsal. Mm -hmm. So uh, anatomy is a, a road map for the horse to who we are and what we are, and we must learn how to control our anatomy, our anatomical areas of uh, fight and flight, or the horse will not accept us. When you do, 
the horse will love you. Not only the horse, but boy, have the deer taught me so much. Mm, yeah. uh, 47 years now, I've been working with a family group of deer, and they're 100 times more sensitive than a horse is. So they charge you a big price for getting it wrong. And boy, I'm having fun with that one. Mm, I'm watching four of them right out in the front of the house right now. They're just beautiful. Yeah. Yep, all yeah. ages and, and all all levels of, of uh, heightened vigilance <laughs> they're yeah. peering around making sure that nothing is around them but michael you said something interesting about the fetal position and you know that's our our inclination is to ball up tense up whatever how do you teach people to relax when when i do lessons or clinics specifically aimed at bomb proofing or desensitization i i say to everyone leave your human nature at the gate because just about everything having to do with riding and proper position and equitation, uh, it's almost exclusively counterintuitive to the way that we as, as homo sapiens, as, as essentially primates, predatory primates, um, that we, we know uh, and we, we feel on an instinctual level. So it's very, not fighting your nature, because if you fight your own nature, you're going to, You'd be just as tense, uh, but sort of letting the horse wash over you, letting letting their senses, letting their reactions dominate your your subconscious thoughts. You, when you ride a horse, you, you know, Mr. Roberts is very correct that uh, they they feel everything: their pulse, or your <laughs> the angle of your seat. Uh, if it's even just a couple inches more closed than normal, they can take that as tension. And so becoming, by sacrificing what you're feeling and trying to replace that with what your horse is feeling, you become more in tune with your animal and you're not hindering them or you're not sending them mixed messages. I find that 99% of any training, not just bomb-proofing, but in the jumper ring, in the dressage ring, any, any miscommunication is due to mixed signals. Tell, you know, wanting the horse to do one thing while actively telling them with your body to do another. So true. That is so true. Have you ever heard the term diaphragmatic breathing? I have not. You want to look that up. You want to get familiar with it because, in my opinion, it is the greatest uh, knob to turn in this business of getting your anatomy down, getting your physiology down. Uh, I can take my pulse rate down as much as 20 beats per minute in five to seven minutes. Uh, Generally, it's about 10 beats, and I have to fight it after that, but I can get down 20 in in five to 10 minutes, and it's diaphragmatic breathing, and the actors know about it, and singers, and certain people who are voice conscious uh, because it lengthens the uh, vocal cords and increases the quality of your voice uh, to have a longer vocal cord and longer vocal cord is what you get when you diaphragmatically breathe but you also get more air in your lungs which then amounts to more oxygen going into your bloodstream which allows the heart to slow down and do its work in an easier fashion it'll actually cause you to live longer I think um, and I learned about it when I was in my teens, and um, I had horses doing things that they wouldn't do before, and I have spent my lifetime getting better at it, and the deer certainly know me for it. 
but diaphragmatic breathing is is uh, a huge part of what I teach my students. It's a great skill to, to acquire, and it's a great skill to teach, too. Uh, I think a lot of people who are professional speakers or uh, have to do presentations, I mean, how many people get out scot-free and not have to do something that puts stress on your body? And if you can <laughs> die, right? And if you can diaphragmatically breathe, you can actually go a long way to getting relaxation out of something that is like you said it's counterintuitive to the human body uh, to public speaking anything like that uh, raising children raising children <laughs> you know anything <laughs> like that so isn't it kind of cool dad to hear the younger generation now starting off their careers knowing this stuff as opposed to you having to climb up a hill to uh, shout it to the rooftops that this oh, stuff you exists? just have no you have no idea debbie how um, exhilarating this is and um, as you as Debbie knows um, my life was threatened at least once a week when my first book came out and I recall so vividly one guy in Walla Walla Washington calling through to my room and saying you die tomorrow night in uh, Twin Falls Idaho I know how to do this and you're going to die you're making a mockery of every good horseman that ever lived. You beat him up too, but you do it out behind a barn somewhere where nobody sees you. And uh, you you know that it has to be done, so you're going to die. You're really ruining the horse industry. And, uh, you know, I feel sorry for the guy. Uh, they arrested him and took his gun away, which he had. And uh, Holy crap. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I've been... I've been helicoptered out of three different places that um, it was online in the early days that they were going to take me for the queen to give a big, um, you know, reward to the people that turned me in or whatever you call that thing, ransom. But today the world is changing. It's changing dramatically, but I still have my doubters and I still have my critics and I still have trainers that don't want to ever hear my name because it, it disturbs their ego to have to deal mm -hmm. with somebody that might be able to accomplish what they can't accomplish. It's, it's quite, a, quite an experience. We have a thing going on in Hong Kong right now that's very demonstrative of all this. Mm. Is that Pakistan oh. Star? Or what is that? Yeah, he's back on the list again, you know, yeah. because the yeah. trainer went back to doing what he was doing before. Yeah. Uh, but I, I changed the pattern with this horse called Pakistan Star. Uh, he was stopping in the middle of a race, and uh, they were rioting because they said the jockey stopped him and bet on the other horses. Um, but anyway, they called me over there, and I went over there. In six weeks, um, he won four and a half million U.S. dollars and is today the highest winning German bred in history. And he's the highest winning horse on my list of horses I've worked with. Four and a half million in six weeks is just off the charts. Well, that so, sounds like a uh, good paycheck. Yeah. yeah, but can you, you believe that the trainer, the trainer just didn't believe me at all? And uh, I got word from the veterinarian that the trainer had gone back to doing the way he did before, and now he's back on the, on the band list and uh, unable to race. Yeah, that's true. Mm -hmm. I, I can't believe, Michael, that you run into too many traditionalists out there anymore, but do you see that yeah. still? Oh, all the time. Oh, the, it's, the only reason I think that people don't 
um, hear about it as much is because it's no longer what I would call in good taste to beat your animal openly. That doesn't mean it's not being done. It's not in good taste. It's not in good taste to, uh, to hit your wife anymore. Like it was, you know, not even a hundred years ago. It doesn't mean it's not done. So I would say just because we don't see a problem doesn't mean it doesn't still persist. And you, you even in, it doesn't have to be necessarily what I would call a backyard barn where it's just someone inexperienced who's, who doesn't know any better, but really high-level professionals. Uh, I've spent a lot of time in the dressage world where the, the amount of, of uh, covered up, uh, I would call brutality and cruelty, is just you know, really astonishing. And, and there are people that know that it's going on. It's kind of hush-hush. Um, and they're so afraid of trying something new because they've made a, 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 they forged a career, they forged a life doing something that, that works. It does work. It, it gets a horse from point A to point B, but it's not the best way to do it. But because learning something new is harder than just doing what you're doing and, and, uh, you know, teaching an old dog new tricks, some of these old trainers are set in their ways and, and unwilling or unable to, to have the fortitude of mind to, to expand out and still learn. And this is one of the hallmarks of the sport is the ability to learn and up to and including the day you die. Uh, I, I think that if you were alive for a thousand years, you wouldn't learn everything, uh, even close so uh, to everything about the facets of our sport. That's so true. That's so true. But, Debbie, you, you've got to uh, sue this Michael kid. Um, because he's reading my lines. <laughs> <laughs> I actually uh, studied pretty heavily under Dr. Temple Grandin, who I hold in esteem as oh, one of the one of the greatest man. gifts to this world. I've, uh, she, we don't deserve her, in my opinion. Yeah. The human race does not deserve Dr. Grandin. I have pictures of her and I shaking hands. It sits very proudly in my office. I have every single one of her works, not just her books, but her actual published scientific studies, uh, in a organized drawer right behind me. And I, whenever I want to remind myself or, or kind of uh, fill up, a fill up, a top up of knowledge, she is a great resource. And she is just the most patient, understanding, and remarkable. Her story is remarkable. And I tell people, if she can do it, there's no reason you can't. There's right. no, no excuses. That's so that. true. Yeah. Uh, you, I, I guess you know that I did some of the uh, introductions and forwards for her books. Yes, and uh, I've actually done public demonstrations with her and spent quite a bit of time with her, and I feel the same way. Um, you're still reading my lines. I, I just love <laughs> this lady so much. Am I going to be getting a notice in the mail that uh, a demand for settle for settling? <laughs> yeah, I... it, you're going to get a notice in the mail, but it'll be one of congratulations. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> I, I love that you two uh, have you know traction here between you. I thought you would, but what I'd like to do is I, I know we've gone um, deep into our time here too, and I just wanted to wrap up with um, I'd like Michael to give. Monty a, a word of encouragement and I'd like Monty to give Michael a word of encouragement to hang in there with the horse industry because we love you. Michael, you first. All right. Well, I mean, how do I tell one of my idols to, to keep going? But uh, you're, uh, you're an inspiration, sir. And there are people right now who, uh, who would like to slit my throat because they're so jealous <laughs> that I, I'm, on the, I'm on the phone with you right now. And it's, uh, 
people like you have changed this industry for the better. And without people like you, I, I think we'd still be in the dark ages using bits the size of tractor tires and whipping our horses tied to poles. So thank you for all the work you do. And every time I see something new that you're doing or a project, I just think, man, I hope it, I make it to that point someday. Oh, well, thank you very much. Debbie, you know, if you were to stay with Michael after we're off this, um, you know, come back to him in another day or time, um, if he wrote a letter like that to the National Rain Cow Horse Association, I don't know whether Michael realizes that after my first book, they threw me out of the Hall of Fame. And not only did they throw me out, but they threw out Johnny Tivio, my winningest horse. Um, and uh, there is a new organization now with a new director and everything. And I'm sure someday they'll put me back in because I won 11 world championships with them. And um, it isn't it isn't right for the next generation to have to uh, suffer through things like that. And a letter from you uh, would go so far because it is, in fact, my legacy that you're speaking to. And um, the Hall of Fame should encourage youngsters to read these lines that you're saying. And um, a letter from you would go a long way, I think. That's very nice. All right. And what's your word of encouragement for Michael? Well, obviously, my word of encouragement is to please stay healthy, do your push-ups every day, uh, be as strong as you can, and carry forward uh, these principles because I, I don't know that I've ever talked to anybody that is on such a similar track as mine. And... Fortunately, I think you got on it in a much easier way than I did. My father was a traditional horseman that beat me half to death from time to time. And I changed and went another way because I could see how horrible it was. And I watched horses die and I watched him kill a man. So uh, I, I went another way. And just like Temple Grandin, Sister Agnes Patricia was my stepping stone into a non-violent life, and um, I, I just love her to death, and I carry a picture with her, of her everywhere I go. So I would just encourage you to realize that you're on the right path, to realize that the world will come to your path. They're not going the other way. It makes no sense to go the other way, and uh, you're doing the right thing. Well, thank you. That meant more to me than... <laughs> than anything. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Okay. Well, thank you both. I appreciate you being on Horsemanship Radio, and I appreciate you taking out time in your busy day. I know, Michael, you've got probably lessons to get back to, and I know Monty's running on to the next thing. So appreciate yeah. you, and want to have you back and have you on together again. It would be wonderful. Thank that would be lovely. Much. Thank you both. Whisper the language of the it's time for Jamie Jennings to fetch an email from Monty Roberts' inbox and share a morsel of Monty's wisdom in a little segment we like to call Ask Monty. Leave this world a better place the magic in the language of My horse is fine with almost everything I do. I can tie her up for grooming but I cannot tie her in the trailer while I go around to close the ramp. She pulls back and breaks everything. She has injured herself twice, and now I don't put her in the trailer at all. Monty's answer. 
If you have put your horse in the trailer and tied her up without first closing the trailer behind her, you have broken the number one red letter rule in all of horsemanship. I am assuming that you didn't know about this rule before you made this mistake. If this book does nothing more than help people through this one problem, then I will consider it a success. It seems that I need to address this issue on every page of every book that I write. I know of so many injuries to both people and horses from this one mistake that they are too numerous for me to count. Virtually every city I visit has a casualty incurred by tying a horse in the trailer before it is secure from behind. Typically, people will ask, well, what do I do then? If I go around to the back without tying the horse, he will back out before I can secure a gate behind him. There is no excuse you can't do it. Once we accept this red letter rule, then we can deal with the options available that are safe. The first and easiest option is to have a friend present to close the back while you hold the horse in place. This will allow you to be flexible on the lead instead of frightening your horse by tying it up firmly in a narrow place. Once your friend has closed the back, then you can make the tie with no problem. The second option would be to use a driving line, run it out through the front of the trailer, and then walk to the rear holding the horse as you go. This will again allow flexibility instead of a solid tie. Once you have closed the back, then you can return to the front to make the tie secure. Another option would be to leave a cup of grain in the manger of the trailer. This will generally keep your horse busy for at least 10 to 15 seconds that it takes to secure the rear of the trailer before returning to the front to make the tie. Anticipating and eating the snack usually becomes a pleasurable experience, eventually causing the horse to be quite easy to load and tie. Every horse person should remember that there is never an excuse for tying the horse in a trailer before the rear is secure. No circumstances is worth the risk of an injury or death to horse or human. Even in the absence of physical injury, breaking this rule is apt to create psychological damage that will cause your horse to fly back out of the trailer when the door is opened instead of backing out comfortably. For more of these insights into good horsemanship, go to www.montyroberts.com and click on the orange banner that says, Get Free Horse Tips. Hi. I'm Monty Roberts, and I'm dedicated to training horses without pain. You can learn to do it, too, on my Equus Online University. Western, English, the beginner, or the advanced rider, it doesn't matter. You can connect with other students online, too, on our forum, and there's a new lesson every week. It's a lifetime of learning for you on my Equus Online University at MontyRoberts.com. In the wide, wide world of sports, is it going on here? Where in the world is Monty Roberts? Monty is looking forward to meeting some new friends, two-legged and four-legged. Starting in February, February 1 to 3, we have an introductory course, Module 1. So it's a three-day course. We're modulating, is that a word? The introductory course that's normally two weeks to make it easier for people to take chunks of it at a time. So February 8th through 10th, we have the introductory course, Module 2. And we have February 11 to 13, the long lining course. And then we uh, have for February 15 to 17, we have an equine facility management clinic. You and I have talked about that, Jen. 
EFM through CHA. It's a certification course, not a clinic uh, per se, but a certification course that um, will probably bring down some of your insurance and will certainly put a shingle up to add to your credibility. And then February 19 to 21, we have a join-up course. And then February 22 to 24, we have an introductory course again, module three. And then February 20 to 24, Monty is over in Norway at the Norwegian Horse Festival. That's February 20 to 24. And then March 1 to 3, we have a prep for the introductory exams, module 4. March 4 through 6, we have a join-up course again. And then March 7 through 9, we have a long-lining course to go with that. March 9 to 17, Monty will be over in Germany at Equitana. That's the largest trade show and horse event in the world. And then Long-term planning, we have the movement in April, April 29 and 30, and that's at Flagazette Farms in Solvang, California. And probably no more beautiful time of year to be in Solvang, California Mm -hmm. than April. It's true. So Mm -hmm. treat yourself. There you go. Um, If you could not put all of this to memory, I know I can't, you can talk to the nice folks at Flag Is Up Farms by giving them a call on the telephone, 805 688-6288 and you can also find all of this information and so much more at montyroberts.com so simple to find out details about today's show you can go to horsemanshipradio.com this is episode 126 and you can find links and photos and more information about today's guests the same monty roberts there you go. Mm-hmm. And to get the app, at you can Monty listen Roberts, yeah. mm-hmm. at Monty Roberts. Yep. Mm-hmm. And get the app. Don't miss any shows on the Horse Radio Network. We got jillions of them. Mm-hmm. Go to your app store and search Horse Radio Network and download it today. It's free and easy to use. And it's available for Android and iPhones. You can also subscribe via t- iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. Yeah, that's right. And it's a lot of fun. And I'm finding more and more people out there, like I said, that are listening to podcasts because it makes sense. Many thanks to our sponsors who make this show happen. That would be Omega Fields. That would be Cavallo Horse and Rider and MontyRobertsUniversity.com. Be sure to visit all the other great shows, too, on the Horse Radio Network at www.horseradionetwork.com. Until next time, have many happy horse hours. <laughs> 